Hi, this is Pastor Tim. If this is your first time listening today, please stay tuned after the message. This morning we're back in Genesis. We're not going to quite finish this morning. We're going to be in Genesis 48 and 49. The title of this message is Gathered to His People. Gathered to His People. There's three chapters left in Genesis, so we'll finish next time. But this morning, uh, we're going to continue looking closely at the story of this family of God, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and Joseph and his brothers and his sons. But as we remember that this is Genesis, God and man, let's not forget about God in all of this. Because as we've looked through this entire book of Genesis so far, I can't believe that we can say that, that we've gotten through this much of Genesis after today, 49 chapters. We've seen that God walked daily in the cool of the day in the garden with Adam and Eve, that he called out to them when they didn't show up that one day when they had sinned, that even though they had sinned, he made them a covering through sacrifice. He sacrificed animals. He gave them clothes to cover them up in their nakedness and shame and to protect them. He even promised them as he kicked them out of the garden that one day the Messiah would come, even though it would cost the Messiah his life. He went with Adam and Eve, even outside the garden. Even he locked them out of the garden with that flaming sword to keep them from being stuck in their sin forever. That God did not want them to live forever in sin. That he would allow them to die one day, that they might be born again with him. We saw Cain and Abel. That Abel sacrificed what God was looking for and Cain tried to do it his own way. And so instead, Cain ended up sacrificing his brother. That in life, there is always a sacrifice. Whatever we do in life, something has to be sacrificed. But that God was merciful to Cain. He didn't have to be. Cain deserved death. And what did God do? God marked him that no one would hurt him. And God sent him out. We saw God be patient as some men began to call on him, the Bible said, while others grew more and more desperately wicked. Remember that leader Nimrod, the first world leader. And as we get into Revelation soon, we'll talk more about that. We saw that Enoch walked with God and God was merciful to take him up in the form of the rapture and take him home to heaven before the flood. We saw the uh, people involved with the Nephilim, that their spiritual wickedness stunk to high heaven, that they got, got involved with spiritual things in awful ways. But that even there, God saw Noah, who Noah was a righteous man, not because Noah was good, but because Noah looked to God in the midst of these dark times. And Noah was used by God, instructed by God, and given plenty of time to prepare that ark that would save uh, his people, ultimately humanity, and also all the animals as well. Saw him send out a raven and doves, and God gave what? A promise of a rainbow and an olive branch, extending that new life and peace to him. We saw Abram and Sarai called out of this land. They weren't Jewish people. They were called out of the Ur, the Chaldees, out of what could be modern-day Iraq or Iran. And in the midst of his uh, civilization, Abram knew that there was something more, and he looked for God, and God looked for him and spoke to him. We saw God be patient with Abram and his failures and even get him through them. 
Even when he had a son in, in the way that God hadn't prescribed, God promised to be with that son and make that son Ishmael a great nation as well. Although he wouldn't be the promised son, God still loved him. We saw Christophanes, where we see pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, where he showed up to Abraham's house. Melchizedek, the priest, outside of the Levitical priesthood that would be to come. And Abraham paid tithes to him. You know, the Hebrews talks about Christ and the order of Melchizedek. We saw God be sparing and rescuing Lot. This, this nephew of Abram that was supposed to stay behind, I think because God knew that Lot would get himself in trouble. But God still had plans for him. But God, Lot's daughters got in trouble. His wife looked back. And yet God still uses their example to this day to instruct us in the right way to go. We saw Isaac and comforting God, comforting him, God using him as a picture of Jesus and not having to be sacrificed. Rebecca speaking to her in her pregnancy as the two nations fought in her womb. And then everything we know about Jacob, Esau, Laban, Leah, Rachel, and now Joseph and all his brothers. And as Jacob said, my days are full of evil and short. But we saw God in these generations after generations, no matter what their spiritual state was, God was and is involved. And God was affected by these things. He was personally involved in these things. He wasn't just sitting back commanding his angels, although he did send angels. He was also personally involved, wanting to see for himself what was going on, even amongst the most wicked of people. Because I believe, from what the scripture shows us, that God is not content to stay out of the affairs of men and women. As much as we want to be content without God. We push him out of our lives. We push him out of our society. We push him out of our government. And we wonder why there's no peace. Well, pushing him out more is not going to bring peace. And it certainly pains him to see us eat that forbidden fruit of trying to rule our own lives. Luke 12, 6 or 7 says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I've read this in similar areas of scriptures many times before because it's so important. It's the heart of God. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, you know this, but if we read the scriptures that go around it, it says, For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's even up on the wall here. Someone gave me a plaque years ago. But I love that it says this after that. It says, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me. That God wants to bring them out of captivity, wants to bless them. As the Bible says, the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, his kindness causes us to turn that he wants us to turn to him so he can listen to us. He wants us to seek him that we might find him. Because he goes on, when you seek me and find me and you search me with your whole heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from the places which I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Is that good place in life, like the garden that we are carried away captive by our sin he wants to bring us back to a place a better place an eternal place without sin so let's not forget god in all of this 
I think sometimes in Scripture, we forget God in it. We go to church, we forget God. I don't know how we do that, but we do. I think that's why there's a reason for communion. It's a good to, to take communion. And we're not taking communion this morning in the sense of the cup. As Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We need to. But I think that extends to all aspects of life. And I'm not just going to say Christian life this morning. Because it's truly not life when it's life apart from the giver of life. That real life is the Christian life. You are not living if you have not been born again. And if you have been born again, remember him in worship. As you study on your own, as you read your devotionals, as you spend time together at church, even as you suffer, and even when you rejoice, remember him, all that he is, all that he's done. Remember what he told us about what's coming too. as we get into Revelation soon. We're going to remember what the Bible says in the past about what's to come in the near future. And as we get into Genesis again in these last few chapters, we remember Joseph's dreams, his code of favor, his brother's hatred for him, their plot to kill him. Instead, they throw him in a pit and they sell him into slavery. We remember Potiphar, prison dreams, Joseph being forgotten, remembered, and exalted. And that dream of Pharaoh about seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, that they're now well within to the famine and probably towards the end of it. That Joseph was second only to Pharaoh, this little boy who was favored by his father and hated by his family, is now the most powerful man in all the world, second only to Pharaoh. We see his brother's journey, not only back and forth to Egypt at quite that distance in the wilderness, but going from being evil and having hard hearts to being repentant and changing and willing to lay down their life for their youngest brother instead of sacrificing their youngest brother for theirs. We see Jacob and Benjamin and all his sons finally reunited in Egypt, that they're invited to live in the best of the land, the land of Ramses, the pharaohs in Goshen. Goshen means to, was it, to draw near, right? And excuse me, Pharaoh provides for all of them to come, all 70 plus of this family that's growing into quite the family, will be the nation, a seedling of a nation, and the seedling will be incubated, uh, in Egypt, protected from the world around them for about 400 years until God brings them back to that land he promised them. And where are you this morning? What are you going through? What have you remembered about your life that maybe has gotten you down? Or what have you forgotten in life that is maybe that's why you're down? Or maybe you're riding high because you've forgotten that bill is due. You got, I got so much money in the bank. And then I was kind of like that the other day. I remember, oh, I just bought all these Walmart groceries. I got to pay the credit card. Not as much money in the bank as I thought anymore. Do you know that God is with you? Do you know that even if it doesn't seem like it or feel like it, that he's right there with you? Sometimes little Timmy will call out, ah! Because he doesn't know we're right there, a couple feet away from him. Like, we're right here, bud. But he just can't see us. Because in life, truly, the only variable is, is whether you and I are depending on God. If we're remembering him, trusting him at this very moment. Why? Because he's the constant. He doesn't change. We either look to him or we don't. He never looks away from us. He looked away from Jesus, that moment on the cross that he would never have to look away from us. So today, as we see the last days and the last words of Jacob, truly of Israel, 
Let's remember that God is with us. And God, we love you and we thank you that you are with us. That God, the only reason we do love you is because you first loved us. That God, you soften our hearts. You let those hard things happen to us. That God, we might see that you are good. We might see that the world will never sustain us. And even then that our sin is dragging us down. But that God, you offer freedom in life. So God, thank you for that. Thank you that we can be born again and that I am born again. That I'm not that old man anymore. And God, I pray that anyone listening would hear from your word, from you, straight this morning. And not my voice, but your words. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's take uh, the next two chapters, 48 and 49. We're going to take them in different size chunks because the content varies a little bit. But let's look at Genesis 48, the first seven verses together here. It says, Now it came to pass... After these things that Joseph was told, indeed, your father was sick, is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. I'll stop there for now. So Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. So obviously he's not dwelling in the same place as them. They live nearby. I don't know if that's family came to tell him. I don't know if one of his servants came to tell him. Perhaps after seeing Jacob with Pharaoh and Jacob thinking he's about to die, was it 17 years earlier, that, you know, hey, uh, they sent the best um, doctors of the land to go look at his dad. Joseph certainly had that power. I don't know if that's the case, but whatever the news was, it's, your father's sick. That this is this is it, you know, and... And I think in some way it's, it's, it's good to know. I, I'd much rather, I don't know, it's hard to say, but I think I would much rather have that time to, to know that the person is sick and dying, to have that time to say last words to them. And yet in the same sense, it's like, wouldn't you just rather your loved ones go quickly that they might not suffer? So there's no easy or right answer sometimes when it comes to those things of death. Because again, we're not meant to experience it. We're not meant to know death. Uh, we chose it. But think of all the sickness that they wouldn't have an explanation for. You know, we have doctors and medicine and scans and knowledge. We know about cancer, blood problems, organ problems, the list goes on. But they didn't know that. There are so many things you and I can die from, and they had so many less answers than we do. And even then, in all the answers we have scientifically, it still doesn't really give us an answer for our heart. I don't know that it helps us any. Sure, life might be easier and you have better quality of care, but at the end of the day, does it help you? Sure, physically, but spiritually, nothing like no no scientific answer can prepare you for death. So Joseph goes to visit Israel, and as he goes, obviously he's a powerful man. He's coming in. Jacob sits up in his bed. I think on one hand, obviously he's sick. 
His, his son is coming in. He's trying to straighten himself up a little bit, show, him, you know, show himself a little bit stronger than he is, try and give his last strength to his son here to see his son. And I think partly because he respects Joseph and the power he has and he loves his son. But I think also, man, isn't that sort of what every parent would do when their children come to see them sick in the hospital? They might sit up a little bit. They might use their last little bit of strength so that their children don't have to see them suffering as much as they might before they showed up in that hospital room. You know, to be strong for your children. I think that's the heart of a parent, right? And no matter what we're going through as parents, we keep going through it sometimes just for our children, that we can be strong for them. And Jacob tells Joseph what God had promised him, and in fact, had promised Abraham before him, and Isaac uh, after his, his dad before him, and Abraham before Isaac. But he says, Joseph, that God appeared to him. That this was a very real thing to Jacob. He actually saw a vision. He actually heard God's voice. That this was a real encounter. And as a believer, I find those who go farthest, and I haven't gone that far in life. I'm coming up on 16 years now, and I can't believe that. And I realize, well, I haven't come that far in that amount of time. But I find that those who seem to get through the most, in my estimation, who stand up the and are the boldest are those who have had that appearance of God in their lives. And or at least those who are not afraid to admit it and not afraid to embrace it. I find the people that falter and fail, not to a point where they stumble, but to a point where they don't continue, where they turn back. And again, I don't know everything and I can't make a total blanket statement here, but I think I find that maybe they didn't have that vision. Well, they seem to have not to have come to grips with that vision of God in their lives. Now, I'm not saying God appeared physically to every believer like he did before the ascension. That's a little different. But I know that when I came to know the Lord, I was in my mom's bedroom in that 12 by 12 room, or maybe it was 10 by 10, up in Chester, New York, in the middle of the night. And I fell down weeping on the floor, crying out to God. I sensed he was in the room with me. I couldn't see him. I looked. I knew he was there in my spirit, in my heart. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I sensed his presence and his touch. And I can't forget that. I had read the Bible as a kid. I had, in fact, experienced someone as a kid singing to God, and I just sensed his presence in the room when I'm four years old. And thankfully, God wouldn't let me forget that. I've failed and I've faltered at times. But even in those dark times, God has still been there. And I, I can't let go of that vision. It's what keeps me going. It's not the experience or the emotion of that time. But as I read the scriptures and keep seeing that it's real, it can't be explained away. There's plenty of things in my life that I thought I knew and I thought I saw that weren't real. I think Jacob might say to us, let God appear to you especially in those times of hurt and great need. Psalm 27, 8 through 10 says, When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, God, your face I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And James 4, 7 through 10 says, Therefore, submit to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you hear that? If you draw near to God, you want to find God, start drawing near to him. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. It's going to take that to draw near to God if you haven't before. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. We so often try to lift ourselves up. But man, we need to let ourselves down and let it all out before God. And you know what? He will lift you up. He will give you joy. He will give you strength. He will give you a future. We see here Israel, that's Jacob, claiming Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. I think in some sense, as he had thought he had lost Joseph all these years, to now have Joseph back in his life, and not only have Joseph, the son he thought was dead for so long, now have his grandkids in his life, I think it's overwhelming for Jacob. Oh man, Joseph's back. I can't believe it. He's got grandsons. What a joy. I can't, I have no idea what it's going to be like to have grandkids one day. My kids are all going to serve the Lord and not get married, so I'm not going to have that problem. <laughs> and we're going to see more of this, I think, in verse 11 in a little bit. But the commentary has something interesting to say about this. It talks about replacing Reuben and Sibion as the firstborn, as perhaps their lives had disqualified them from the blessing and their behavior and Joseph and everything else that they had done. And it says, Jacob's adoption of Manasseh and Ephraim explains why there are 12 tribes often listed in different combinations. Because of this adoption, there were actually 13 sons of Israel. The 12 were born, but Joseph was divided into two tribes. Therefore, as the tribes are listed throughout the Old Testament, they can be arranged in different ways and still remain 12 tribes. There are more than 20 different ways of listing the tribes in the Old Testament. And there's a lot to talk about for the tribes of Israel, which I'm not going to get into, partly for time, partly for it's over my head a lot of it. I still need to learn a lot more about it. But sincerely, there are some tribes that, that get cut out later as we look, and that's why there's different listings, because of what they say. But as a number, 12 is an interesting number. Uh, if you go on the website to where the message is, there's a button to download the notes. You can look at the notes, and on page 4, uh, there's all these things about 12 in the Bible, such as uh, 12 is associated with government or administration in God's eyes, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 princes of Ishmael, 12 pillars on Moses' altar, 12 cakes of showbread, uh, 12 stones as large as altar, 12 hours uh, in a day, 24 in a full day, 12, hours, 12 months in a year, 12 Ephesian men filled with the Holy Spirit. It goes on and on and on. Check it out. Um, 12 can be found in 187 places in the Bible. Revelation alone has 22 occurrences of it. Uh, it's considered a perfect number. It symbolizes God's power and authority. That as these nations are, uh, and tribes are born into the nation of Israel, God is showing his power and authority and perfect government in it. And as we'll see, God likes to mix things up. God doesn't like to, to trust in the things men likes to trust in, such as being firstborn or the birthright we even saw was flopped before. So take a look at that. And as we get on in verse 8, it says, Then Israel saw Joseph's son, and he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down to his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward 
Israel's right hand and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads, let my name be upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Then Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, My God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So Jacob couldn't see which one was which, and he asked who they were. And I wonder if he was remembering at all in his blindness about his dad and when he was being blessed, when his dad thought that he was Esau and he was Jacob. Uh, but these kids were beside Joseph's knees. I don't know the timeline here. Obviously, it's 17 years later. These men's could, these boys could be adults. It says they were by his knees, so I don't know if that's the way Joseph was standing and they were just next to him, but I get the sense that, that they were still young here. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I can't really comment on that. You know, if the famine was over and they were here and, you know, the 17 years kind of makes it a little bit older. Uh, you know, the Bible doesn't say when he had the son specifically. Uh, but they could be grown men. They could be grown men too, or at least young men. But Israel blesses Joseph through his boys. And he says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, uppercase angel, that, that this messenger of God, that Jacob had seen Jesus, that he had redeemed him out of all evil. Out of all evil. I love that. That, you know, he's praying. He's, he's praying to God. And he beseeches him as the God who was of Abraham and Isaac, the God who had fed him, and the angel who redeemed him. That he addressed God. And then when he addressed God for who he was in his life, he says, this God who has blessed me and redeemed me, bless these boys. Make these boys the recipient of your covenant. We see Jacob kind of do his thing here. He has a plan here. He knows. God has given him some insight. And he's going to bless the younger again over the older. And Joseph's not happy about it. Joseph's like, Dad, he's the older. He's the older. Let me switch him over back and forth. And I think in a sense, it's tied similar to the thing that happened at Jacob, where Jacob was the younger and received the blessing. But also the kids' names have some play in this, I believe, is... The commentary also points out that Manasseh means forgetfulness and Ephraim means fruitfulness. And Ephraim would be the one who would be blessed. I love that Jacob takes these boys to himself, that he loves his son's sons as his own and wants them to be blessed. And that should be the heart of any grandfather, to love those boys and to care for them and daughters too. But he says, behold, I am dying, but God will be with you. 
Joseph, I'm your dad. I know you love me. I love you too. And even though I'm going away, you know, God's going to be with you. And I think Joseph knew that. But losing a parent, I'm not looking forward to that day when I get that call or that message. I'm really not. But he says, God will be with you. And he will take you back to the land of your fathers. Even though we're in Egypt now, know that God's promise is not over. I'm reminding you that we're going to go back to that promised land one day when God says it's time. And God wouldn't say it was time for 400 years. But you know what? Joseph's bones will be brought back 400 years later when Moses leads the Israelites out. And the commentary talks about from David Guzik. It says, apparently while still in Canaan, Jacob battled for control of a portion of land for the Amorites. And he deeded that land to Joseph and his descendants. And the descendants of Joseph would take this land some 400 years later. But there was a special plot in that promised land for Ephraim and Manasseh for Joseph's sons. And again, check out the, the notes, the PDF download of these notes, because there's 49 things here that I saw in the commentary that was we kind of alluded to some of them along the way. But Joseph being a picture of Jesus, and they're so good. Read through them on your own time. I'll read through a couple now. It says, Joseph was a shepherd. He was loved by his father. He was sent to his brothers, but he was hated by his brothers. Prophesied of his coming glory, he was rejected by his brothers. He went to Egypt. He was made a servant. He was falsely accused. He made no defense. He was cast into prison. Showed compassion. Was given a Gentile bride. Was 30 years old when he began his life's work. He blessed the world with bread. He became the only source of bread for the world. The world was instructed to go to him and do whatever he said to do. Was given the name God speaks and he lives. His brethren were driven out of their land. His brothers were a way of deliverance through substitution. He was revealed as a man of compassion. He made provision for his brethren. He prepared a place for his brethren. And he brought Jew and Gentile together in the land. There's many other good ones there to check out. But Joseph, again, quite the picture of Jesus. And I don't think Joseph had any idea when he was going through any of it, unless maybe he prayed and God said, you know what, I've got a purpose in all this, my son, that you just have to trust me. Let's go on and read 49 here together. <clears throat> 49 verse 1 says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I might tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi, our brothers, instruments of cruelty, are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel, let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine 
and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell, uh, shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for the ships, and his border shall join Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. How would you like your dad to say, you're a strong donkey? <laughs> Lying down between two burdens, he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. I wonder if that's why Joseph gave him five portions. In the morning he shall devour the prey. At the night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. So we see that Jacob brings his sons together this one last time. He calls all his boys, who are now men and older men, together. Because he wants to bless them and tell them important things. And it's interesting, the commentary mentions that this is the first conscious prophecy spoken by man in the Bible. That this is clearly, he knows what he's saying, and he knows that it's prophecy for his children. It's interesting, he says it's about the last days. It's certainly about their lives, about the things that are to happen after Jacob passes away. But it's also, I think, about the last days. It's about everything that's going to happen to these, these men, to these tribes, and even in the last days for Israel. Commentary talks about a lot of this prophecy being kind of fuzzy, but a lot of it being fulfilled. But a lot of it, perhaps, we won't really totally understand until uh, it's been fulfilled in the end. But I know as I read this that God is not done with Israel. Like in uh, the prophecy of Daniel, there's still another week of years to be fulfilled for them in the last days. That God's not done with them. That it's, in a sense, God used, grafted the church in to make them jealous. And when the church is taken out by the rapture, that God's main plan will be for Israel again. And not that his... They're sidelined by God's will. They're sidelined because they've rejected the Messiah. Because again, the church doesn't replace Israel. We're grafted in. We're part of that foundation. But I like how Jacob lays it all out there. Nothing's hidden. If my dad one day calls all of us together before him, <laughs> I hope he doesn't always spill the beans on everything that we've, we've done. But when we come before the judgment seat of Christ, all will be laid bare. When God speaks to us about our lives at the end, man, nothing's going to be hidden. If you don't know Jesus, it's going to be a rough time. Everything wrong you've ever done is going to be laid out, and you're going to be punished for it 
in eternity. But you don't have to be because as believers, our judgment is not that of condemnation. Jesus was that judgment of condemnation, but we are judged unto reward. And God's going to say, look at this good thing you did in my name. Look at that. Look at that. We're going to go, really? I don't remember that. God's going to go, I remember it. We see that Reuben laid with his father's concubine. It was really Dan and Aftali's mom. It's interesting that those guys, interesting what, they're, what comes to them. But uh, Bilhah, it's interesting that uh, the commentary also mentions, because I'm not this much of a scholar, but it says, no prophet nor judge nor king came from the tribe of Reuben. And also says that Reuben is an example of how the first shall be last. And as you said, the first will be last and last shall be first. And that's all in all this, that God is mixing up the, the blessing and the order that it doesn't matter who they are in this life and their statue, what they were born into. It matters who they are in light of God and their life. And that's what Genesis, God and man's about is really, is God involved in our lives or not? And are we allowing him to have his way in us? We see that Simeon and Levi, uh, because they wiped out everyone in retaliation for what happened to their sister Dinah, talks about their anger. And it says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And then Jesus could rage. He flipped the tables. But he didn't sin when he did that. But these guys, they were angry for what happened to their sister, and rightfully so. I can't blame them, so to speak, but man, I don't know. <laughs> they probably shouldn't have wiped out that entire tribe of people. But it also says that the tribe of Simeon became small during the wilderness wanderings. That they started out from Egypt, being the third largest tribe, as it's seen in Numbers. But some 35 years later, uh, at the second census of Israel, the uh, commentary says that 63% of the tribe perished and they became the smallest tribe. And man, just because you have numbers now, if you're not following God, there's not much left. We see the Levites inherit a portion of each tribe's land, and that was a blessing then. Although the, the Levites were scattered, they were not scattered as a curse. Uh, they were scattered as a blessing, and they had a portion among each of the tribes there. But verse 10 is the Messianic prophecy. It says, The, shep, the scepter, uh, like a, what a king would have, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience to the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. Again, uh, where they inherit the land here, that's great wine-growing country. But it's interesting to me that Jesus turns water to wine. That his blood is likened to wine, and we are to be washed in it. That our robes are to be washed in wine. Normally, you don't want to wash your robes in wine. But Jacob skips around to Leah's sons here. Uh, Zebulun takes over an area that's kind of becomes a port area. Issachar apparently is targeted by foreigners for capture. But this is interesting from what this other commentary says from Leupold. It says the meaning seems to be that Issachar was strong, but docile and lazy. So he was a strong man, he had strong power and influence, but he was overly peaceful and overly lazy. It says that he would enjoy the good land assigned to him, but he would not strive for it. Therefore, eventually he would be pressed into servitude and be, and be the mere bearing of burdens for his masters. And I can't help but think America in these last days, I'm willing to strive for the blessings that our lands affords us, but instead we want to take it from those who have it because we're spoiled and unwilling to work. There's only one end to that, and that is slavery. We see Dan, uh, Samson, one of the judges, comes from him. And some think, uh, by the way, a serpent by the way, refers to the idea that perhaps the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. 
Uh, Dan is left out of the listing of tribes in Revelation, uh, but Dan is the first tribe listed in Ezekiel's millennial roll call of the tribe. So even though he, uh, we don't see him in the picture of heaven, we do see that there is some redemption for Dan in the last days. We see Gad, uh, he provides troops for David. Asher, uh, Moses apparently repeats this prophecy to them, uh, and they actually have uh, a big yield and uh, luxurious uh, life that, you know, they do well, they prosper. Uh, Naphtali is, this I thought was really interesting, is the land near the Sea of Galilee, and where Jesus did his ministry, that Naphtali uh, is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words, and man, wasn't the beautiful words of the gospel preached in the land of Naphtali? Uh, Joseph is fruitful despite all that was thrown at him in life. And again, I think, man, our modern culture blames others when they don't do well, instead of realizing that they too can be fruitful despite hardship and oppression. Uh, it's all up to you and I, and, you know, in a sense. But Benjamin, we say, from him becomes Ehud, Saul, the king in the Old Testament, and Paul, in the New Testament, from the tribe of Benjamin, right? But it's interesting that they each have their own specific word from their father, and that each of them is part of a larger part of the blessing of God to Abraham, that these 12 tribes, although different, although they, they act different and they end up living different, some being more obedient than others, and obviously there's a split of Israel in one day, um, but that it's all part of this one promise to be a nation of God, and that it all hasn't been fulfilled yet, that there's still a plan for God's people, the Israelites. It's not over yet. And we would do well to bless the nation of Israel. We would do well to stay their allies, both personally. Uh, I love the Jewish people that I work with. Uh, it's great to have conversations with them or at least try and reach out to them. There's something uh, honorable about that, even if they haven't come to the Messiah yet. And Genesis 12:3 says, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curses thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That man, God's going to bless Israel, and we should be on God's side. We shouldn't worry about God's on our side. We need to be on his, and God's side is with Israel. Verse 29, let's finish out this chapter here. It says, Then uh, Jacob charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered uh, to my people. Bury me with the fathers with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. Remember when Sarah died and Abraham did, no, it's 400 shekels between us. And they, they made that deal to buy that first spot in the promised land was for a burial place. Verse 31 says, There they buried Abraham and Sarah's wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. It's interesting that Jacob's talking about Leah again and focusing on her. I wonder if he regrets not loving her as much as he should have. Verse 32 says, The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up under the bed, and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I think it's great that this, there's this familiar... Eh, Familiar, familial burial plot. And again, I know it's just bodies and bones in the ground, but there's something special that desire, that desire to be buried with your family, to go to the place um, where your people are. And there's something special that desire to have that family resting place. I desire for my kids and my family to have a resting place, to have a home to come to, that when they grow older, they could come back to, that they might inherit and their kids might live in and know that this is the place of our family.
And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I love that saying, gathered to his people. But this is the end of Jacob's life. We've seen him from when he was in his mom's belly and fighting and warring and going through all that he went through, like we touched on with his brother and his mom and his dad and running away and his uncle and being cheated and falling in love and working hard and being cheated and coming back and seeing his brother and being afraid and not sure what to do and losing Joseph. Maybe even forgetting the promises of God in his life for a while. But he commands his sons here. In his last breath, his last words, he goes out strong. He commands them. He charges them. He gives them orders. And in this prophecy, he was commanding his son, sons, this is God's word for you. Live by it. Live it out. Trust it. It defines you. And I love this picture of a father commanding his children in the ways of God. Psalm 127, 4 through 5 says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. That as parents, as godly parents, we are to guide and command our children in the ways of God, even to our dying last breath. Deuteronomy 6 says, uh, now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk in them when you sit in your house. There's a great song uh, by the Verses Project that, that does this. It's fantastic. And he says, When you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Is it any wonder, then, that we are losing our land? As America is falling apart, is it any wonder it's falling apart? I don't think so. It's because we have neglected to command our children and our grandchildren and the ways of God as a nation. But there's still time. I command my children. I pray that they would command their children if the Lord wouldn't return. And then we stand up for righteousness in a holy way, in a right way. But as we see that this is the end of Jacob's life on earth, as he commands his sons, as he passes on the promise of God to them, as it was passed on to him, you know, God spoke directly to Abraham, directly to Isaac, and directly to Jacob. But God's not speaking directly to these 12 men in this instance. He's using their father to impart the words of God to them. And that is our role as parents to do that. And even after this long, hard, evil life, even admitted by himself a few chapters earlier, Jacob knew what was most important in life, and that was God's word. The last thing he said to them was God's word. The one thing he wanted his kids to have even in the end, was God's word. And it was personally to each one of them that he said each one of his boys 
He was going to give a word to. And even if that word was a hard word that Jacob wasn't going to hold back. He wasn't going to sugarcoat it. He was going to tell them like it is. And I think to have that last breath to say, it don't matter what no one thinks about me anymore. I'm out of here. You know, it's kind of like you put your two weeks notice in somewhere. And, uh, what are you going to do? Fire me? You know, generally that's not the attitude we should have as believers, but sincerely, you know, in high school, senioritis, you're, you're done. You know, what, what else can happen? You've already been accepted to college. But to know you're about to die, and it must be quite the thing to know that, man, you're dying. You thought you'd been dying for 17 years, and now it's kind of it. Even the doctors agree. Going to that memorial celebration of life service for a pastor's wife recently, hearing those words that she recorded to her family that they graciously shared with us there in audio. And to hear those words of a woman of God knowing she was about to die, knowing she was leaving behind loved ones, and the things that she wanted them to know was what? The word of God. But Jacob knew that he was going home to be with family, to be in heaven. He wanted to be buried with his fathers, but he knew that he was going home to be with his people, to be in heaven. You know, technically we can get into it, we talk about Abraham's bosom. It's another topic for another day. But in reality, the end for Jacob was heaven, to be with all those in heaven. Second Corinthians 5 eight says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That God had spent all these years with this family, and Jacob was going to spend all eternity with God and his family in heaven. And he'd be reunited with his people. I love that verse. That he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And when I go home, when I go to heaven, I want to be gathered to my people. When I go visit people back east, I want to be gathered to my friends. I want to go and have dinner and sit and eat with them. When I die, I can't wait to meet David. I can't wait to meet Abraham and Moses. Of course, Jesus, first of all. But to meet the disciples and be like, these are my people. These are the guys that I looked up to, that I was inspired by, that loved God, and that I could read the words of God through them. And man, those are my people in life. And the people that I've gone to church with that have died before who were believers, my people. My people. I hope that they would consider me their people too. But God wasn't overdone yet. That God had focused so much of our attention on Joseph these last few chapters and these many years that had gone past. But he still wasn't done with Israel yet. That as we close out here, we see the end of Israel and his promise for the nation to come. Uh, Exodus is the next chapter, so there's a bit of a break here. But he's not done with you yet either. Do you feel undone? Sometimes we feel undone in life that we're untied over with. But God is not done with you yet. It's not over for you. And God, like Jacob to his sons, God has a word for you as well. And I know that that word is Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you an expected end. This whole Bible teaches us, like we're going in Revelation soon, about an expected end. Do you have that expected end? When your life is over, do you know what happens? Are you ready for that day? That like Israel would come out of Egypt one day to inherit the land promised them, it was an expected end that Jacob was passing on to Joseph, that God's promises to you and me as his children are expected. And that expected end is yes and amen. And whatever God has said in the scriptures, whatever love that he has for you and I, it's going to be. Even if he allows you to go to hell because you chose it, it's an expected end. It's his love for you saying, I love you so much, but I would never make you love me 
I would never make you come to me. I'll do everything I can to get you to come to me. But I love you so much that I'm going to let you do what you want to do. But he doesn't want that for you. God's will for you is not hell. It is heaven. It is being united with him in, in paradise. And do you have confidence in that expected end? You can have it. It's easy. Just trust in him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to make you new. Tell him you love him. He loves you. And follow him. Read the Bible. Get in the scriptures. And if you want to pray that prayer, hang on for a minute and the prayer will be available to you after this message. So God, we pray that you would uh, use your word. That God, we could trust it for our expected end. And when we read the Bible, we know the expected end is what? To know you better. To come to know you. To have our lives changed and made better despite everything that's going on around us and in us. That God, we could trust you every time we come to you that you will be found by us. That you will not hide yourself from us if we come to you honestly and we weep and we're broken over our sin. So God, do that in all the ways only you can by your spirit. In these last days, draw all men to yourself. Bless the nation of Israel. Protect them this day from their enemies all around. Help us support them, God. But most of all, may they come to know their Messiah. Uh, those people I work with, those people that we know, and just, God, really, anyone who doesn't know you this morning, may they come to know you and trust you and taste and see how truly good you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you've never come face to face with God, if you're starting to see that your life is not all that it's supposed to be, if it's weighed down with sin and burden, or perhaps it's just empty, you have everything you want in life, but you know there's more. Know that Jesus loves you. Know that he cares for you. And that the reason why he came and died on the cross is that all the things you've done wrong, the things that are called sin, keep you from going to heaven, keep you from being close to him, close to the one who truly loves you. And if that's you, all you have to do, like the Bible says, is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he's Lord and you will be saved. You don't have to do anything else. So won't you pray with me? You can pray this. It's easy. Talk to him. He's listening. Lord Jesus, God, I see that I'm a sinner, that I can't live without you. I can try, but and I have tried, but it's empty. It's worthless. It's painful, and, and it's killing me. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me of hurting you and hurting other people and myself. Please make me clean. Help me, God, to know you and to trust you and to follow you all my days. Be my Lord. And come soon, I pray, Jesus. Amen. And if you've prayed that or something similar in your own words, please let us know. Visit our website and get in touch. Or talk to someone in your life who's a Christian. Find a good church that believes the Bible, that teaches the Bible, that lives it, and get involved. Christians aren't perfect, but God is, and he wants you to be around others who love him. So may God bless you and keep you, and his face shine upon you.